As you're being seated, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. If you don't have a Bible with you, you may find a pew Bible in front of you. and You'll find the text on page 904. As I mentioned this past Sunday, John 13 begins the upper room discourse between Jesus and His disciples. From John 13 to John 17, Jesus prepares His disciples for what they can expect in the next 24 hours, in the next three days, and for the rest of their lives. Tonight, we're skipping ahead to chapter 18 before we come back to the discourse in just a couple of Sundays. Dinner is now over. Jesus is leading the disciples away from the upper room and down into a garden. A garden that we will see where the Son of Man is betrayed by one of His own. Jesus has already already identified Judas as the betrayer in chapter 13. And ironically enough, none of the other disciples have picked up on this. They thought Jesus had sent him out to buy more food or to give some of their money away to the poor. They didn't know that he was about to sell Jesus and the rest of the disciples out. But Jesus knew. In fact, we'll see in our text tonight that it was all part of God's plan. And that seems hard to believe on some level, doesn't it? That Judas's betrayal was somehow part of God's plan. That God ordained Jesus to be handed over to the authorities. Handed over through the betrayal of a friend. It's hard to reconcile painful and difficult circumstances as being part of God's plan, isn't it? It's easy to assign God's providence and His care to the good things that happen in our lives. We have no trouble giving credit to job promotions, new friendships, or restored health. But when there is pain, when there are betrayals, we tend to speak sheepishly of God's providence. We are hesitant to lay responsibility at God's feet. Would God really bring me this trial? Could He really be behind my suffering? I think if there is anything that we learn from our text tonight, it's this. God will use any and all means necessary to accomplish His sovereign and good purposes in our lives. It's one of the reasons I love reading John's account of the Passion Week. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do a masterful job of showing us Jesus' humanity in His suffering. But John shows us Jesus' sovereignty in the face of His suffering. And we need to see both Jesus' humanity and His divinity. We need both pictures so that when we suffer... We know that Jesus can understand what we're going through. And more than that, that He has power over our suffering. How do we see that? Well, let's look at our text together. Again, John chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, 
Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you stir your affections, would you stir our affections for the Lord Jesus as we have heard this text? And would you fulfill the promise of your word that that it would not come to us without having achieved its purpose of instructing us and encouraging us and challenging us? We pray that you would do this for Christ's sake and ours as well. Amen. Well, growing up in the 80s, I loved watching the TV show, The A-Team. Led by Hannibal Smith, the, the A-Team was, going, was a group of four Vietnam veterans. And near the end of the war, they were arrested for crimes that they didn't commit. They managed to escape, however, but remained fugitives. And as the A-Team, they used their military training to fight oppression and injustice. And each week, of course, they found themselves in dicey situations. Impossible situations where it seemed that there was no way out. And yet, Hannibal always had a plan for completing the mission. The plans were always risky and required that everything go just right for the plans to work. Despite the risks, the team trusted Hannibal. They trusted him because his plans always worked. At the end of every episode, the A-team would always get justice for their clients and they would always avoid capture by the military. This always would bring a smile to Hannibal's face as he told the team, I love it when a plan comes together. But what happens when the plan doesn't come together? What happens when it falls flat? What happens if it doesn't even seem like there's a plan at all? That's certainly what the disciples wondered as they watched the events unfold in the garden. And who could blame them? When you and I read the Gospels, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. We know that Jesus' death wasn't the end of the story. We know that death was necessary for Jesus to pay the price of our sins. We know that the resurrection was necessary to ensure our spiritual security. But the disciples didn't have the full story yet. They didn't have all the pieces. They were living this story in real time. Imagine what that must have been like. Imagine if you had been witnesses to Jesus' incredible power over sickness, over blindness, over paralysis, over evil, even death itself. Imagine seeing Jesus' power stop a storm at the height of its rage. Imagine passing around a basket of fish sandwiches which Jesus used to help feed 5,000 men and more. Would you have understood what it all meant? Would you have believed that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah? I don't think I would have. 
Who did they see Jesus as? Well, they saw Him as a deliverer. A deliverer from oppressive powers like Rome. From broken relationships. From corrupted desires. From chronic illnesses. But as it is often with us, they were looking to Jesus to treat physical symptoms and not spiritual roots. You see, treating the symptoms of sin is like clipping a weed. In a matter of days, what does that weed do? It grows right back. It grows back because the root is still intact. But if we loosen the soil, we'll be able to pull the whole plant out, root and all, and it won't grow back. Jesus came not to clip the symptoms of our sins, but to dig out the root of our sin. And it involved a radical treatment. It involved Jesus' death. That was the plan. That had always been the plan. In our text this evening, we examine the responses of Judas, of Peter, and of Jesus himself. Each response is different and telling for us as we examine our own hearts and expectations of Jesus. Let's look at Judas first. We see Judas' response to this plan was to betray Jesus. What the disciples failed to see at the Last Supper is now made clear in the garden. Judas wanted out. He no longer wanted anything to do with Jesus or His plans. And though it may have seemed like a rash decision, it wasn't. It had been building over a period of time. I think for Judas, it boiled down to this. Judas no longer saw Jesus as a bargain. It became too costly for Jesus to be followed. The spiritual economics stopped working in his favor. You see, up until that point, Judas was willing to pay the cost of following Jesus. He was willing because the benefit of following Jesus outweighed the cost. It was a good deal for Judas. However, when the cost of following Jesus began to outweigh the benefits, Judas was unwilling to cover the cost. Following Jesus stopped being a bargain. In light of this relational deficit, Judas decides to cut his losses and end the relationship. He saw no reason to continue on. Matthew tells us that Judas not only wanted out, he also wanted to cash out. He thought, if I'm going to part ways with Jesus, I might as well make a little walk-in money. He received 30 pieces of silver for his service. And we read what those services were in verse 3. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there, that is to the garden, with lanterns and torches and weapons. Judas shows up with an army. We can only assume that he's expecting a fight. It's remarkable how quickly Judas was able to to get this arresting party together in such short time. He brought a band of Roman soldiers uh, for crowd control. And a band ordinarily would be around a thousand soldiers, but most likely it was around 300 here. He also brought officers from the chief priests who were there to arrest Jesus and the disciples. Interestingly enough, this wasn't the first time these officers had tried to arrest Jesus. John tells us of an earlier attempt to arrest him in chapter 7 that was unsuccessful. When asked why the officers returned empty-handed, they told the chief priest, no one ever spoke like this man. The chief priest responded, have you also been deceived? 
not wanting this to happen again, the Pharisees are there to be sort of the theological police. There are some, though, who speculate that Judas's actions were meant to simply force Jesus' hand. It was an act of frustration to compel Jesus to lead this rebellion against Rome. As compelling as that might sound, I don't think Scripture really supports that. No, I think Judas betrayed Jesus because he didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And in his mind, if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, there's no point in following him. Jesus was as good as dead to him, which is why it was so easy for him to sell him out. When you think about Judas's actions, let me ask you, are you more apt to judge him or sympathize with him? I think our natural inclination is to want to judge him. After all, consider what he has seen Jesus do and what he's heard him say. How could he not see it? More than that, how could he sell Jesus out? As I get older, I find that I'm more sympathetic with Judas. I get it. Following Jesus isn't a bargain. It's costly because it calls me to do the one thing that feels like a death. And it is a death. To deny ourselves and take up our crosses daily is a death. It is a death to our self-centered desires. It is a death to our flesh when it screams yes. In those moments, following Jesus doesn't seem like a bargain. There are too many times when I've said yes to myself, yes to my self-centered desires, and no to Jesus. I may not be physically selling Jesus out like Judas, but I most assuredly am spiritually selling Jesus out. You see, when I sin, I'm telling Jesus that you're not enough. I'm telling Him that your way is not worth following. Am I any less guilty than Judas? I don't think so. I'm also no less guilty than Peter either, who was also guilty of a betrayal. We see secondly that Peter's response was to betray Jesus' mission. In John 13, Peter had made it clear to Jesus and the other disciples that he would die for Jesus. No one could question his loyalty. No one could question his courage. For Peter, there was no cost high enough that he wasn't willing to pay, including his life. But Jesus knew better. Knowing what would soon take place, Jesus breaks the news to Peter. He tells him that not only will you fail to lay down your life for me as you claim, you will actually deny knowing me not one time, not even two times, but three separate times you will deny knowing me. Can you imagine how that must have stung Peter's pride? It surely made Peter want to prove Jesus wrong. I think it's probably why he had that sword, or it's really more of a dagger, hidden in his cloak. I think he wanted to show Jesus what he was made of. As Judas led his army toward Jesus and the disciples, I imagine Peter tightening the grip on his sword. He would get to show Jesus how loyal and courageous he truly was. He would prove Jesus wrong. Sadly, the only thing that he proved was that his pride was more important than Jesus' mission. In verse 8, Jesus negotiates the release of the disciples. They were free to go, but but Peter wasn't ready to go. He sees his chance of proving Jesus wrong slipping away. He has only a moment to act, and he does so hastily. 
he attempts to stab the servant of the high priest named Malchus. I have no doubt that he intended to kill this servant and start a fight. Peter thought that he was ready to die for Jesus. Fortunately for him, his kill shot was only an ear shot. His aim was as clumsy as his plan. How humiliating it must have been for him to have been reprimanded by Jesus and on top of that for Jesus to put the ear back on the servant that he had cut off. Peter put Jesus' entire mission in jeopardy so that he could satisfy his pride. Peter's pride blinded him to Jesus' mission. It blinded him to his own weakness and need for the very thing he was trying to prevent from happening. By attacking Malchus, Peter thought he knew better than Jesus. Peter was blinded by the sin of pride and so are we. Oh, it's not that we can't see it. I think more times than not, I just don't think we want to see it. We don't want to admit it. Some of you know the name John Stott. He was one of the great British Christian apologists and pastors of the 20th century. He also founded the Langham Partnership, which is actually the mission offering that we're giving to this Easter that he started many, many years ago. And I've long admired him for his brilliant mind and his pastor's heart. I love what he said about pride in his own life. He said this, I myself am quite happy to recite the general confession in church and call myself a miserable sinner. It causes me no great problem. I can take it in stride. But let somebody else come up to me after church and call me a miserable sinner and I want to punch him on the nose. In other words, I am not prepared to allow other people to think or speak of me what I have just acknowledged before God what I am. There is a hypocrisy here. There always is when pride is present and meekness is absent. That's what pride does to us. It keeps us from seeing the truth of our own heart. It causes us to cut off the ear of those who would confront us lovingly about our sin. It keeps us from trusting in Christ's righteous work rather than trusting in our own righteous work. Jesus has come to kill our pride. And He must be the one to do it. You see, you and I aren't strong enough to do it. And nor are we brave enough to do it. And yet the only way for Him to kill our pride was to be killed by our pride. That was the plan. That was the mission. Thirdly, Jesus' response was to embrace His mission. And yet He not only embraced His mission, He was in control of His mission. His Lordship over all that was happening in the garden is captured beautifully in our text. Look at it. In verse 1, Jesus picked the place which was outside of the city to prevent a riot. In verse 2, Jesus picked a place that Judas would have known about so it would be easy to find Him. In verse 4, Jesus meets the arresting party rather than waiting on them, all the while knowing what they were going to do. He also asks them who they're looking for. When they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, He responds, I am He, in verse 5. And did you notice what happened when He said that? The men drew back and fell to the ground. Why did they do that? Well, when Jesus said, I am He, He wasn't just saying, I am Jesus of Nazareth. 
He was saying, I am the I am. I am Yahweh. And when he said that, they got a little shot of divine glory across the port bow and it knocked them off their feet. In verse 8, he negotiates the release of the disciples. And in verse 11, he rebukes Peter for his actions and expresses his willingness to drink the cup the Father has given him. All of these details point us to the fact that Jesus fully embraced and was in control of his mission. That mission, he says in verse 11, will require him to drink the cup that the Father has given him. What's the cup Jesus is referring to? Well, as a figure of speech in the Old Testament, the cup referred to either a cup of blessing or a cup of judgment. For Jesus, the sinless life he lived earned him the cup of God's blessing, the cup of his fellowship. But for you and I, the sinful life we lived earned us the cup of God's wrath. All of God's righteous and holy anger towards sin was to be poured out on us. There could be no escape. You've heard the expression, you've made your bed, now you have to lie in it. Well, that's exactly what we've done. We've made a bed of rebellion against God, and God says that we must lie in it. We must face the awful consequences of our sin, which is God's judgment. Of course, that first happened in the Garden of Eden. It's interesting to note that Jesus and his disciples are where? They're in a garden. Matthew and Mark identify the place as Gethsemane. Luke refers to it more generally as the Mount of Olives. But John simply refers to it as a garden. And I think he does that on purpose. He wants to take us back to the beginning, to the first garden, the Garden of Eden. He wants us to see that in Eden, Adam sinned, but in Gethsemane, Jesus did not. In Eden, Adam fell, but in Gethsemane, Jesus conquered. In Eden, Adam hid himself, but in Gethsemane, Jesus presented himself boldly. In Eden, the sword was drawn, but in Gethsemane, it was sheathed. God is fulfilling the promises he made to Adam and Eve in the garden. Her seed, who would crush the head of the serpent, though his head would be bruised, or his heel would be bruised, was Jesus. He was to serve as the substitute, the one to stand in our place. He would do what Adam and Eve and you and I could never do. He would drink the cup of God's wrath for us. He would be the one to absorb our death blow. Jesus' mission was to drain God's wrath so that we might be filled with God's blessing and fellowship. We are reminded of that fellowship every time we come to the Lord's table. Do you notice that we come not to an altar where sacrifices are made, but we come to a table where fellowship is received. We come to a table where faith is nourished and hearts are humble. We come experiencing the already and not yet of that fellowship with God. As you consider the life you live in the life Christ gave this Holy Week, may you embrace with joy the high cost that Jesus paid to make you His own. May you know that the price He paid was a bargain to make you His own. He would do it again if He needed to. But praise God, He doesn't. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this sacrificial love that was given for us, undeserved, unmerited, yet freely given. Lord Jesus, thank you for fulfilling your mission and your plan and for remaining in control of it. Lord, give us the faith and the courage to trust you when we go through our trials, when we go through our suffering, knowing that you care and that you are powerful, more powerful than our sufferings. Father, would you give us faith as we are led to the table that we might be encouraged and strengthened, not only by the elements, but by the presence of your spirit. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.